Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank Susan, Chichilia, and Richard, as well as Caitlin, for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. This week, we will be talking with Evie Erb from Durham, North Carolina. Erb is a national award-winning American artist who graduated from the Maryland Institute of College of Art in 2016 with a BFA in ceramics. During her time at MICA, she also studied illustration and textile design. After studying ceramic sculpture in Florence, Italy, and receiving her degree, she returned to her hometown in Durham, North Carolina, where she has worked at the North Carolina Museum of Art, taught workshops at a variety of art centers, served on curatorial jury panels, and given lessons and art talks at various institutions. Through her work, she studies the figure through a contemporary lens, focusing on human connection and mortality. Her interdisciplinary work explores the impact of anxiety and trauma on identity and gender expression. Finding herself constantly aware of the connections between memory, body, and media, she presents the human form examining the dissidence between the psyche and external patriarchal culture. The pliable connections between the physical and psychological are illustrated by the intimacy between the figure and its surroundings. Her resulting work, showing the explorations between mind, body, and healing, evoke personal narratives in psychologically charged environments, questions the impact of gender and identity on our perception of a subjective reality. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Evie as we talk about weaving in the craft world, mistakes, advice, and so much more. Today we jump right into the second part of our interview with Evie by talking about weaving's place in the craft world. Okay, so let me ask you this. Um, where, If we had a ladder here behind us, imagine a ladder here, and we had every craft on that ladder. Okay, hit me with what rung you think weaving is. Yeah. Like, the how war- is it perceived oh, in the greater population of people? Would it be... <laughs> I mean, for me personally, or like the world at large? Oh, jeez, man. Mm. God, that's a depressing question. Because you know what? I I think it'd be pretty low on that ladder. You know what I mean? Um, when people think about art and craft, they don't, they don't think about weaving, you know, unless, unless they're an artist themselves or, or a weaver themselves. Like wood furniture and um, things like that. You know, people like think that. about art, they think about painting, people think about crafts, they think, think about like pottery and, you know, mm. other, other materials, not necessarily weaving. Um, yeah, like, man, but I also think that that's changing right now. I think um, part, part of that reason is because there's such an ephemeral quality to textiles. Ladder, it's not it's as... 
Like we can um, see pictures of it. There's remnants of it, but it's not as long yeah, lasting question. as let's say a piece of pottery, like a ceramic shard or something, or like a painting that has been preserved. It's like, it's more of the, it's part of the sure. ephemeral oh. because it's not, it's long lasting, but it's not as years and years and years long lasting unless it's taken care of. Mm. Well, another another issue there is also because weaving has never really been seen through the lens of its own art form. Like historically, it's always either been seen through the lens of painting, like tapestry weaving, like in the 1400s when, you know, right. that really started kicking up speed in like Europe, like France and German uh huge painterly tapestries they were seen through the lens of like that language of painting not weaving mm -hmm. and then you had uh you know different um like jacquard pieces being made that were seen more through the lens of like decorative arts not weaving so it's it's always been a battle of like having weaving being seen through its own lens of a discipline and as its own thing standing alone not informed by something else and yeah, it's tough. And I feel like, I feel like that's maybe hopefully starting to change a little bit. Um, I feel like definitely in like the online weaving community, it's, it's picking up more speed and more people are starting to pay attention to it. And also on the other hand, more corporations are also sort of starting to try to profit off of weavers in a way. And I feel like, you know, that's obviously bad, but also can maybe have some good effects in the sense that it gets. What does it do it to our consumers thinking a little uh, bit more about their sort of value of textiles that, or or maybe so, like yeah, the public's value of textiles that, in order to like um, one of the ways right that you can start a painting is by stretching canvas, right? But you look at the canvas as a piece of fabric that's made to do fine art on. You know what I mean? It's not it's mm -hmm. not the art, it's the back of the art. It's like Yeah. Yeah, it's just another tool in the Right. The substrate. Yeah, the substrate. Um like another tool in the toolbox of a painter is it's a means it's canvas. a means to an end. And yeah. you know, how much do they pay for that canvas? A few bucks maybe. Um even if they're making a enormous painting, the I, I know that this is not a sign. This is not an argument about the value of it, but um, if you sort of take what I, what am I spending on high quality oil paints, right? Which is another part of the painting, and then what am I spending on the fabric that I'm painting on? You've got like a giant discrepancy there, you know. So it's like I'm not trying to argue the value of the cloth versus the paint in that regard, but just sort of. How is it perceived? Uh, oh, it's absolutely. like the cheapest part of the whole thing. Well, something, something that I just, I find kind of funny with painters is like, honestly, how little they know about the canvas that they're painting on. Um, you know, they, they don't know what a duck structure is. They don't know mm -hmm. what, necessarily the difference is between cotton and linen or any other type of linen and Belgian linen. They don't, 
even know that much about the materials that they're working with. So coming at that, you know, through the lens of a weaver and having that knowledge is actually really important to me as a painter as well, because it gives me a lot more respect for the surface that I'm working with. And honestly, like that's, it pisses me off so much. Like when, when painters like brag about like working on like super fine Belgian linen or something that they paid a ton of money for. Cause like, honestly, those surfaces can end up costing a pretty penny, but they don't know the first thing about it. They don't know what type of fiber it actually even is. They don't understand mm-hmm. that it's flax fiber. They don't understand how it's made, how it's threaded, how it's processed. And they don't understand that, you know, the profit margin that those companies make off of selling those surfaces that are like, quote unquote, fine art, like the finest Belgian linen that you can find. They don't understand that it's like actually structurally and like the quality is not that different from yeah. like you can go to the thrift store and find a linen shirt that's been discarded and take that material and stretch it on a frame and go paint on it. And it's kind of not that different, you know? Um, so there's there's definitely like a production issue there too and like an understanding and appreciation of textile and material and also a disregard for kind of, you know, the environmental processes and the environmental toll that that takes. Um, yeah. So, mm. yeah, I think it, it really yeah, affects every arena. So now I'm on to the final two questions. Right, this is what always happens. Last time we did this and I kept asking that. questions and then we were actually yeah. late for a doctor's appointment because I didn't realize that it was scheduled. So I, I can't I can't push back on a ton <laughs> more questions anymore. That's what I've learned. That's why we'll have a part two. Yeah, part two, for sure. Okay. Oh, no. So. Oh, my first question. I hope that you got the... Did she get the... (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, So I'm asking, uh, because Tegan hates it, about a big mistake that you made and like what you learned from it and how you grew (laughs) as an artist and all that. It could be in... uh, Like somewhere in your weaving business or surrounding businesses or something like that a big mistake that i made just is that not on the questions no it is oh okay because i always feel like people are stumped maybe we need to make it bold that's yeah hmm Hmm. it is on the questions yeah i was thinking about that and i mean the thing is like i've i've made so many mistakes but i also I value the mistakes that I make so much because I always learn from them. Um, So that's kind of tricky. I think that um, Mm. maybe the biggest mistake I have made as a weaver would be waiting so long before getting my first floor loom. Um, Because for the first like two years that I was weaving, I didn't really take myself as a weaver seriously. Um, and I just didn't have the confidence as a weaver to justify in my brain, you know, making the jump to buying a floor loom. And looking back, I think that was a lot of time that I lost um, where I could have been working with, you know, the tools and materials that I deserve to be working with, but I didn't have the confidence to take that step. Um, yeah, looking back on it, if I if I could do that differently, I would have bought a floor loom so much sooner than I did. Um, and I think that that's that's good advice for anybody starting out weaving. Is you know if if you're like most weavers and you start up and you just fall in love with it immediately, 
go ahead and buy the materials and tools that mm. you need. You know, don't don't wait. Um, it's worth the investment and it's worth the time. And your time as a weaver is really valuable. And don't waste it working on tools that, you know, are not deserving of, of your time and talent. Uh, yeah, I think that would be probably the biggest mistake I made as a weaver. Um, but that being said, I learned a lot as a... Uh, a weaver starting out using I like smaller it. looms. Um, I so think there's, that there's to that, as well. that is a big um, thing. I think, well, when we were starting out, there yeah. were like tools we yeah, knew we needed, <laughs> but for whatever reason, we couldn't sometimes get past the mental block of like how much that tool cost. And like, is it really going to make this process that much easier? Is it going to make it another thousand dollars easier? And I think as we started, there was sort of like a bell yeah. curve of us buying looms and equipment. And on the, on the way up, at some point, we realized like, yeah. oh, you know, though this is expensive uh, and getting a more understanding of why, like, there's only so many of us that need that equipment. So if somebody's going to make a living making that, they have to charge as much as they do. But that thing also saves me five hours every time I warp the loom. So why, what, what is it that I'm like gaining by being stubborn and yeah. doing it like the slowest way possible? Yeah. Yep. I mean, payoff, the payoff is immediate, you know? And honestly, that's something that like, I, I'm talking about it and I'm realizing I'm still guilty of this. Um, <laughs> my, Oh, my warping board. Um, I need to get a warping mill. And I have been kind of daunted by the cost of it. And I just need to like suck it up and do it. Um, because <laughs> the warping board I use, I actually made myself seven years ago. And it's, it's not in super great shape. It's pretty beaten up. Um, but, you know, having the wherewithal to like know how to make one and just mm -hmm. going for it. Uh, that's a great thing. You know, if, if you don't have the money to buy the equipment that you need, knowing how to make it yourself, just sure. Why not go ahead and do it. But, uh, you know, if you, if you have the means to buy that equipment, absolutely. You, you should go do it. Like, um, <laughs> that's right. We've all got a, a few of, of those like, around well for artists that can yeah. help them yeah. <laughs> get the equipment that they need. So and, my uh, question, Oh wait, I have another yeah. question. Yeah, See, my this is what always is happens. Um, <laughs> what is your either preferred or favorite material to use when you're weaving? Uh. <laughs> oh. oh, I love them all. Um, I would say. Mm. Weird. Sorry, that was my gut reaction. Like, oh, favorite. Um, kind of strangely, I would actually say mohair. Uh, yeah, it's weird. It is weird. I have kind of like a thing with mohair. Um, it and oh gosh, I love mohair so much. I love spinning mohair. I love blending it. I love dyeing it. I love everything about it. And it's so finicky and it's so challenging to work with which is why i love it um because especially like if you're using it in a really complicated design like i do overshot most of the time like 95 percent of the time i'm weaving overshot and 
using mohair and overshot, it's not easy to get like the definition that you want in, in your design. But I love that challenge. And it makes me think about like how texture works through two different lenses on a textile. You have the tactile texture of a piece and you also have like the visual texture of a piece of like what kind of impact does it have when you're looking at the textile from far away. And mohair has this really incredible ability to like create blends of colors in areas of overshot designs where normally you wouldn't really be able to get that so smoothly. Um, but also like for my personal work, like going in and painting on top of a textile with mohair, it's just like, there's something so gratifying about taking a big brush and dipping it in gesso and just going at some mohair on it. It's like, I don't know, it's the best feeling in the world for me because it takes these fibers and it just completely flattens them out. And you have this amazing contrast between this hard gessoed surface and this beautiful, lush, lofty fabric. Nice. Underneath. So this is and something when you were saying that we just dug out the from, texture uh, our storage bin while we were moving. Feeling of it. And I don't like, know, it might be really hard yeah, to see. I love that contrast. But this is something I'm just going to brag about Tegan's awesome uh, ceramic skills. So she made felt. And then poured, like dipped it. Yeah. Well, yeah. It was dipped, and then you. Uh, I burnt it out in the yeah, kiln. Yeah, in the kiln. Yeah. Yeah. Did a burnout? Yeah. Yeah. I used to do. Oh my god! Yeah. I love burnouts. I did. Uh, back when I was in art school, I did a project. Uh, Right. That burnout technique actually with feathers. And oh my God, it was so ridiculous. Like having to hang up each individual feather to like let the slip dry and everything beforehand. Yeah. It's so like I I respect the amount of yeah. like finesse she did that it, it takes to to use something like fiber and do a yes, yeah. it. Yeah. So and there's another piece that we had to take apart because we just couldn't like it was it so everywhere. Cool. It was oh glass God. full of sand. I want to see it was and very sharp. Okay. I want to see that up close. So it wasn't sand, it was flour. Flour, awesome. sorry. What I did is I made this really long glass trough, filled it with flour, and then I had all of these little burnout ceramic pieces that I had made. And it just oh. turned into like this moonscape kind of thing. That I have pictures of, yeah, so I'll have to send sure. that to you. Yeah. <laughs> it's so See, together like, oh man that's a whole other this could be for part two like this is a whole other conversation of like the relationship between fiber and ceramics is so strong and yeah i'm excited to, i'm excited okay to see i your work i almost switch, switched switched like my major from fibers to ceramics to there was there was a brief moment in time when i was like backgrounds in ceramic work so yeah, yeah i want to talk with you more about that that's awesome um and then she also did a killer piece that has somehow survived all these years. We're like opposites um, on that. <laughs> of, she made like this giant felt block and then put it inside a sand thing. Do you have it? Have She'll it. go get it. And poured iron into it. Yeah. Yeah, in uh, sculpture. She did a bunch of cool fiber sculpture things. Yeah. Like molten iron? Oh. oh, please. Yeah, I don't care. Oh, that's so cool. See, like, that's kind of like, is it is it okay if I curse? 
Okay, that's kind of like the badass like side of like fiber art, you know, like I feel like people working with like molten metal and, you mm-hmm. know, firing ceramic and, and kilns, like there's something like a little bit harder about that. And then people that's see right, fiber yeah. art, it's just like, oh, it's soft, it's fluffy, it's cute. You know, I hear that so often about fiber art that it's cute. And I'm like, no, it's mm-hmm. not cute. Fiber art yeah, is I mean, fucking badass. Yeah, I mean, Tegan was um, really like, into yeah, the art side of it. Like that, that just put it... Um, and then, oh, no, I mean, so, like, I've literally just, like, I know this awesome. is just like a, how, look how cool Tegan is <laughs> show right now, but she also made these, like, in college, these books. So all of these pieces of felt are from, like, different sheeps and stuff, and then she embroidered on the back side of them, and we, like, mounted them on these little things, and she got, uh, Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, yep. That's like, it's those techniques. Is that like, and she Coptic did those mount? and like sent them all over the world to shows Looks and like, stuff. Uh, it reminds me of like Coptic. Yeah. So, so I couldn't find the iron piece. It's we'll somewhere. It, yeah. It. I'll take a picture of it and send it to you, because I, I there were a lot of almosts in college. Oh, I so almost cool. decided I wanted to do all of my work in iron because mm-hmm. I fell in love with the material. Awesome. And it's because it's also one of those kind of even though it's iron it lasts a long time it's so susceptible to rust and erosion and all of these environmental impacts that's why i was attracted to it because it's the same thing with textiles how Mm -hmm. it's is impacted by what's around it yeah Yeah, i just ran downstairs yeah i know (laughs) and um and then for years and years and years i mean i'm saying that like i'm 50 but um it was like five or six years right she made this really <laughs> cool sculptural metal tree and then felt it around it. And it was sat in our, my parents' yard, like right outside this window. And it just sort of like rotted away. And like that was the whole idea of it. Birds came and they took pieces of it for their nests. And like it had like some impact on the environment around it that wasn't um, oh. like that wouldn't have happened if it was there, but not necessarily bad. So it just became part of the earth again. And now there's like little chunks of metal out like in the woods a little ways because at some point it was like, we either have to move it or like we can't be running it over with the lawnmower. That's beautiful. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 That is in That's not my next well, life, like whole... but in a life when i have a little bit more time i'm gonna get back into my artwork because that was really important to me i still i view myself as an artist and a craftsperson yeah let's get through this mill experiment first yeah we're gonna get through the mill experiment first and kind of see where that takes us and then possibly i mean there's do you want to grab that piece oh yeah (laughs) so i was doing a lot of work with wool and latex if i fall don't freak out okay and I'll be okay. I can't remember the name of this artist now, but she did a ton of work with latex, and it was super hard to keep it preserved because it's such a finicky <laughs> material. It doesn't last a long time. I, I ended up using it more like paint when I was using it. So I, I hate working with latex. This piece <laughs> I'll be is... With you. Oh, cool. 
So it's all hand felted, and then I embroidered the circles on the outside, and each thread that made a little impression oh on the outside had a made had a connection to the opposite side on the inside. Yeah. Mm. Right. I mean, it's, it's and then like, I painted the like whole inside nucleus, with latex once you know? it was done it's, because I really of, wanted like, that like so skin feeling natural just and it's so far it's held up pretty well. I'm surprised it's traveled from Buffalo to all over the place. Oh, it's also been in Slovakia. We have an exciting announcement and we just couldn't wait until the end of the podcast to tell you. We're hosting our first roundtable discussion on October 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The topic of this discussion will be the value of textiles. Textiles are part of our everyday lives. You cannot go through a day without encountering textiles in some form or another. And there is something inherently special about hand-created textiles like quilts, hand-knit sweaters, and hand-woven towels, especially when embraced in our daily lives. However, there is an ongoing discussion about the value of textiles, does their prevalence in society diminish its value? Are the people who produce handmade textiles being compensated properly for their time? And why is there a disconnect between maker and product? And how does that impact the views of a particular piece? Join us for a conversation and academic discussion about the value of textiles throughout history and in contemporary times. Our guests and friends of the pod, Evie Erb, Lily Marsh, Justin Squizero, and Tegan Frizzino, We'll discuss these topics and more. Together, we will be examining how textiles have been valued over time and how that has impacted how they are viewed in society today. Go to professionalweaversociety.org forward slash roundtable to RSVP. If you are a patron or a member of the site, you will be able to ask questions of the guests during the live discussion. Attending is free, but if you enjoy the evening and would like to help us put on more events, please consider becoming a patron or giving a one-time donation. Now back to our discussion with Evie Erb. And I ended up traveling to the Czech Republic and Slovakia for a workshop and a gallery show that I had my work in. But I've also had work in Scotland. I've had work all over the U.S. And then I just switched to production weaving. Well, it was interesting. You, You got into... A lot of that fine art and you were like i mean i think the the prospect of being a fine artist at the time of being in college was a bit daunting yeah um and what all goes into that too. It, yeah very much and we had it was, it was a very interesting conversation we were sitting outside uh my latin two class and it was the second time i'd taken it um, because it took me four years to get two classes done in a language. Latin's tough. <laughs> yeah, but I know. I thought it was going to be like, I know English, so I have the, you know, I'm not learning like a whole new way to speak, uh, but I just, I can't do languages. But we're not talking about me here. We're talking about Milady. Um, and she, we sat out there, like before some giant test that I definitely needed to study for, and I didn't study, uh, because we talked about what do we see are like what what in this world of uh fiber design could we see making a life at yeah and ultimately it came down to weaving and i think the 
you did production basically production for your your senior thesis show yeah um and then from there it was like all right how do we get a loom to do this let's get a loom let's get going and we worked part-time like she worked part-time for several years while she was like sort of getting it up and off the ground um and then this mill we're working at now uh came into our lives at that point and started giving us like steady wholesale work nice and from there it was like okay now what then my mom got sick and we settled down close to here and it was kind of like the perfect place to settle down for us because we were um more north of where we are now but we're sort of like in the middle of sheep farms and mills and around places that sold like we're only four hours from Jaggerspun. We're like a day shipping from um, Henry's Attic. And so we sort of like found that we could do the production work. And then while she started, I worked full time and basically subsidized starting. And then as we got going, we realized, well, a confluence of events uh, landed me working with her. And we're both like we supported ourselves for a few years until the uh, the old good old pandemic hit. Yeah. Um, and so now we're sort of I mean, part of us is uh, doing this mill job so that we can like really get our own yarn line off the ground. And part of us is doing it so that we have like some reliable income and then we can have like from yarn to finished product for you know we can have like a yarn line that we can control we can make products out of that yarn um we can expand it to do bast we can you know do all kinds of cool uh things with it to sort of expand this thing that we can do for the rest of our lives yeah and and someday i'm gonna go back to the art well that's the hope right because if we get the mill going and we have a weaving studio we basically take our weaving studio downstairs and move it there um then we can hire weavers to do the like boring part of the production weaving, you know? That's and amazing. then, you know, we can get back to the things that really drew us to it in the first place. Well, and I think, I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you just said there and kind of how you guys ended up where you are. That is really important for like other young artists to hear that are starting out and kind of like facing over the edge of the cliff being like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and understanding that, like, you just have to, like, jump into it. And yeah. you also have to, like, kind of invest in yourself, too. You know, you have to, like, take some time, maybe take a couple of years and just save up money and invest that money in yourself and your your studio practice. Yeah. Um, and it's a scary thing to do, but, you know, you just got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, I think that the thing that happens or pe- that people are afraid of at some point, maybe, you just have to be careful that you're always focused on that. You can't let yourself get in the safety of a paycheck. Yep. Like yep. the the safety that a paycheck provides. Um, I may have never left doing what I was doing if they didn't close, just close the department. Yeah. And I never would have started weaving full time if they didn't shut right. down my close job. Your store. Yep. Yeah. So it's like you have to. I I think that that's awesome. In as long as you're really focused in making concrete steps. You stay, you have to be like laser focused. You have to find a job that you can go to for those hours and get paid. And then you leave that job and it's just a job. 
You can't well, like having the discipline to like be your own boss, you know, it's, right. You know, if you're a weaver, you're running your own business, you know, you're, yeah. you're essentially a small business owner and that's true for artists as well. And you have to have the discipline to, you know, get up, get your butt in the studio every day and just get to work. Um, yeah. And I know that a lot of people really struggle with that because they don't have the structure of like clocking in and having a paycheck. And, you know, that's a really, that's a really big challenge for some people. And, uh, you know, you just have to kind of like abandon that sense of security for a little bit and just go for it. Yeah. 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 We're extremely lucky in that uh, we have an insane support system that basically um, to some degree, you know, we can fail as hard as you, anyone can fail. And we know that, you know, it may take us years to pay it back, but there will be so in some way we will be bailed out. Yeah. You know, I mean, even right like during the pandemic, one of the reasons why we're selling our house is because how the hell can we afford to like fully have a house and pay all those bills and everything? Yeah. So we moved into my childhood home and my dad moved across the driveway. And, you know, that is like a like a subsidy and a luxury. I'm fully aware that people don't have. And it makes it that much easier for us to. Like we take what we gained from that and we're trying to put it into things like this where we've got the time, we've got the security, we can donate X amount of hours a week to working on uh, the podcast and the Professional Weaver Society and we can put together things like I'm working right now on like the first issue of a magazine that we're going to sell through the society. Congratulations. And yeah. And like we're trying to put together classes with... um, with weavers that I mean, can teach like, online yeah the amount of like equipment and space that you guys have it's you know it's a weaving school in the making right yeah yeah, yeah. at some point we have 10 acres and there's they're all out that way that we can put like a barn up on and That's incredible yeah so someday you know the the hope is that you know maybe we're running a mill and that whole business while also having a weaving school and some kind of retreat and we can make art yeah that's awesome. awesome. So yeah. this this lends me to leads me to my question. Yeah. Okay. So that was a full fifty five minutes since I asked my question. <laughs> Which so my question is: What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? It could be life. It could be weaving. It could be art. Just something that really impacts you and yeah. kind of helps you keep going. Um. The best piece of advice I've ever received uh, would be from one of my professors that I had in art school uh, named Dave Cloutier. Um, and if, if you ever listen to this, I'll, I'll tell him. I'll tell him that I talked about this because this was like the most impactful thing that anybody ever really said to me relating to being an artist and making work is enjoy the tedium. And I think that that's so applicable to weaving because there's so much about weaving just as a process and art making in general as a process that is tedious. It is hard labor. It is a lot of energy and it's a lot of time and you just have to learn to love it. You know, even if, you know, I don't always necessarily enjoy spending days and days prepping my warps and, and, you know, doing all of that before getting to the fun part of actually weaving, but you just have to learn to love it. And I love doing it. Um, but I know that a lot of weavers struggle with, you know, 
<laughs> getting all that done. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely enjoy the tedium. Those are three words that changed my life. Cool. That's awesome. I think that um, the, the tedium is what brings me to anything. Yeah. Like uh, the, I, I do design and web development, software d development, stuff like that. And the tedium of that, just like the same thing you have to do a hundred times, just like setting up a project. You know, it's like the funnest part, like weaving, right? The funnest part is the, is the fastest part. Yeah. yeah. You know, if, if you do a time study and you look at how much time you're actually weaving versus doing all of the rest of the stuff around it, prepping, designing, wet finishing, uh, sewing, shipping, uh, admin, dealing with clients, sending, you know, all that kind of nonsense that, you know, it's like maybe 10% of your time. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And I think uh, when Dave said that to me, uh, it was actually in the context of being in a live figure drawing class. Uh, so like, you know, I had a new model in front of me and I was working on a charcoal drawing and we always started our lessons out doing uh, really intense timed gesture drawings. So we would go from a five minute pose to a four to a three to a two minute to literally a 30 second pose. And it would just be like, and just kind of learning how to go for it. And also approaching it with the understanding of anatomy. And he was saying that to me in the context of taking your time, understanding, you know, where the figure is in space and understanding how the anatomy is working. And I think that that's also really true for really all art forms is like understanding the context of your work to just outside of like the, the technical production and the tedium there, but the tedium of like understanding where does your art fit in the world that in and of itself is a lifelong process and that will never end and it will always be a challenge and it's always enjoyable. So, yeah. yeah. I like that. I'm, yeah, I'm very much, awesome. I love the tedious. I love the tedium. I do everything the most long winded way possible. Yeah. Most difficult way. We're big fans of jumping in on the deep end and then <laughs> taking forever to swim back to where we can touch. Yep. Like, <laughs> You were talking about sewing and I was, I, I had, when I was little, I always wanted to be a fashion designer, but I never took the time to learn how to sew. Yeah. So now as an adult, I'm learning how to sew. And the thing is I went from, I made, I made one coat w at a workshop and it, because I had the teacher there, it came out perfect, impeccable, whatever. Yeah. And now I'm like, okay, talking about uniforms, I'm making myself coveralls. And I got a pattern that has 17 pattern pieces to it. And I'm like, I was just sewing masks a few months ago. And that was like, <laughs> kind of throwing a face mask. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So now but that had four pattern pieces, right? That yes, it had four pattern right? pieces. So we're just elevating a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. now it's, it's like the tedium of really figuring out the steps and breaking it down to its core is really what is enjoyable for me. Like mm -hmm. I'm the next time I thread the loom, I've been watching all these videos on different ways to thread the loom more efficiently. Yeah. And Justin Squizero posted one where he put, instead of like putting a thread in between each finger and pulling it individually, 
he had like 30 threads on one finger and was just going boom, 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 boom through his heddles. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I have to learn a new way to thread because that is awesome. Mm-hmm. So he really broke it down how to do it. And so now I'm going to do the same. I'm going to break down my threading process and really figure out the best, most efficient way to do it to make it more enjoyable. You mean but, just like the way that he would hold the cross in his hands or like? Yeah. So instead, so he would have his Lee sticks behind the heddles. And when he took his threads off, he would like group his heddles into his pattern repeat. And let's say it was like 60 ends. So he would take the cross off the Lee sticks and put it right on his finger. Yeah. I never oh, learned to do it that way. I, I do it actually with a way. Um, it sounds like he has a much a significantly larger loom than I do. But uh, I have a particular way that I hold my cross when I'm threading where I. I'll try to show you guys on, on FaceTime, but it, I bundle it around like my main four fingers in a way that it's separate, but that it's it's loose enough in tension that I can literally just like pluck the threads as I go and it's right. so much it's so much faster than just like going one by one yeah well we'll yeah. FaceTime again and I can show you what I'm talking about more yes but, yeah. yeah yes <laughs> that's how I run I run it like up these three am I oh yeah I run it up these three and then cross it here and then flap it all over the like the top so they're all down oh, but okay. I have to say that Full disclaimer, I own I've I only weave rugs and at most I go six cents an inch. Okay. Uh, and so at most I have, you know, so average we'll say five ends an inch. I put that over thirty inches. Yeah. So that gives me like no warp at all. Yeah. Whereas she's doing like eighteen ends an inch or like twenty five or thirty ends an inch over you know over six, sixty inches. Yeah, sixty inches. Yeah. So I in in you know sixteen harnesses. So it's much, admittedly, much different for me. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh cool. Well, I mean, that's just a whole other episode in and of itself of just like you know different techniques in different kinds of weaving. Um, yeah. Because I think you know, even if you don't know anything about weaving, you can understand how many different types of cloth there are in the world and how many infinite possibilities and applications weaving has and like understanding the the technical differences between weaving something like, you know, very fine, very like, you know, chiffon-y kind of like gauzy fabric versus something like rug weaving. It's like hugely, hugely different. Um, yeah. Or like warp or weft faced or yeah, I don't know that. Uh, I want to talk to you guys more. <laughs> yeah. Anytime. <laughs> Seriously. Yes, please. I'm like, this is so refreshing getting to like talk nerdy talk about weaving because it's such a specific discipline and like that's something too that I love about like living so close with Sydney and getting to see her is like just talking with other weavers about the process is so refreshing because not a lot of people do it professionally so yeah yeah, Mm -hmm. it's absolutely a breath of fresh air yeah Yeah. thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast and for taking the time to talk with us this has been so much fun yeah blast absolutely my pleasure thank you so much oh man it was so much fun talking with evie 
Yeah, it makes me that much more excited for the roundtable. A special thank you again to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.